Hi, this is Julian with Behind the Audio. Today I am interviewing Philip Shepard. He's a cello professor at the Royal Academy of Music in London and he's also a composer who did so many things I actually had trouble preparing this interview properly. The most recent thing that you probably heard about is his contribution to the soundtrack of Detroit Become Human where one composer was in charge of one character each and he made Kara's music one of the three main characters. So without further ado, here's Philip Shepard. Before getting to Detroit Become Human, I saw that you just recently released your, what you call it, sophomore solo orchestral album. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very American term, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, it's my, it's my second uh, solo orchestral album that's, that's separate from a film project. That's, that's sort of the, really the basis of it, I suppose. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay, I see. Yeah, and it's called uh, Full From Earth. But it's it's essentially, I mean, it's similar to my kind of cinematic music, but it's it's based on, yeah, all the pieces are interconnected, but it's basically string orchestra, solo cello, electric cello, and electronica. So it's kind of, it's the sound world that I write in, but it's all the pieces that seem to fit together away from movies or, or, or a game, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Interesting. So you, you were looking for the same style, but with more freedom? Um, I, I suppose it's the style that I'm writing in at the moment. And, and, and weirdly enough, with the projects that I that I do, whether it's the game or whether it's it's movies, people tend to ask me to write in, in I suppose, in my, in my own sound now. Whereas mm -hmm. I think when every composer starts off, there's this aspect where you're trying to find, well, what, what do people want to hear? And yeah. actually, you just have to. Yeah, that's a really dangerous path to go down. You actually just have to write um, what you hope will give one person goosebumps. Mm -hmm. uh, and if the first person is is you, sometimes that works. <laughs> not always. Then that's a, that's kind of a good place to start. And mm -hmm. so I suppose it's it's music that's written away from brief or commission, but that's probably most representative of where I'm at. So mo most of the music I write aw away from projects tends to be for specific people. It tends to be dedicated to, to friends or people I've worked with, because mm -hmm. then I, I find it much easier to write music about people. I don't want to write music about, about myself. I mean, that'd be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's an interesting approach, actually. And uh, now that we are already uh, on the topic of inspirations, I, I wrote the paragraphs on your website about um, sort of your inspirations for this album and it's I, I couldn't quite put together how space travel and an ancient handprint uh, go, go together <laughs> could, could you tell me more about that yeah so uh, it, it's it's maybe a slightly abstract thought but it makes sense to me my, my first movie that, that I ever worked on was called um, in the shadow of the moon mm -hmm. and it's very strange because I went straight from from studying and teaching in a conservatoire as a you know, professor at the Royal Academy of Music for, for a long time. A cello professor, not, not, not a composition one. Mm -hmm. And I, I made a movie with um, five friends and none of us had done a film before. And we, we were working with the Apollo astronauts. So we were working yeah. with seven or eight of the people who had walked on, on the surface of the moon, which is kind of crazy. I thought I, I couldn't really make the connection between practicing scales in a practice room and then being in a room with people who had literally been to another world. And I yeah. remember thinking, wow, music's kind of got me here. That's 
That's crazy. And then since then, I suppose I've been lucky because of doing documentary to be in, in a circuit of people who do things that I would consider humanly impossible, whether mm-hmm. it's flying a spacecraft, whether it's being able to change the world, whether it's being able to start a revolution, whether it's being able to fight a government, all of those kinds of things. To me, all of those require a sense of, of I suppose, personal elevation. Mm-hmm. So the idea, of, so the album's called Fall From Earth, which means it's almost, if you if you lost belief in gravity, mm-hmm. is that possible? And that's also, and, you know, at the same time, I'm learning to fly. And I just like the idea of kind of almost losing the baggage that one gets and things that weigh people down. There's something to do with actually physically being in the air and also being able to be mentally free, being able to actually have an imagination that can be really bigger than your own mind. I'm not saying mine is, I'm saying a lot of the people I've been fortunate to know are able to think in terms that seem to be humanly impossible. So Mm -hmm. the connection is, the connection with the handprint is that 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 handprint that I talk about was, um, it's it's on a cave wall in Indonesia and it's a 14 year old girl who who made the impression of her hand just using like a a silhouette. It's like a negative space. Mm -hmm. It's always stuck with me because that's 40,000 years old and it, right. And it's, it's before there's any technology mm. and in 40,000 years time, that will still be there. This computer won't, I won't, my cello won't, you know, my cello will be around in 400 years time. My laptop certainly won't. Yeah. And it seems to me that in a way that handprint represents an idea. And that idea is basically, I, I was here, you know, it's just, this, this is me. It's a bit of beautiful graffiti but it's way more permanent than anything that we all do or make. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that the things that will travel through time are probably ideas. They're probably things that wrapping goosebumps, those are the things that will actually have durability. Mm-hmm. And whether that's a belief system in people are essentially good, I think they are. Uh, it might be that, hey, chocolate's nice. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Whatever yeah. that is. That's going to last a lot longer than a lifetime and a lot longer than a government and a lot longer even than than some religions, all that kind of thing. And so that's sort of the very loose umbrella for all of those ideas, I suppose, is there's a connection with all of them to somebody who maybe, I'd say, um, surpasses their ability, if that makes sense. It, it does. It does. I'm just wondering how it translates um, into into concrete music, uh, how you... Uh, is that a very emotional uh, sort of uh, connection that you make? You you think about these kinds of ideas and you just ride away, or is it more of an intellectual approach? I don't think it's intellectual. That's a really good question. I think it's more... If I hear something that that gives me a thrill, that gives me goosebumps to think about or to hear... Then what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create a similar kind of goosebump rush in harmony and texture and sound. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not that it's about that thing. It's more, hey, that idea or that picture gave me this lovely visceral feeling. I'd like to try and do that in music. So mm-hmm. I suppose it's more like, hey, ultimately, if I can give a listener goosebumps in the same way, but using actually just noise, <laughs> then, and it is noise, you know, it's just... It's just noise. I just arranged noise into. I will say that I'm a um, uh, a noise designer. It's, it's easier than saying I'm a composer. Um, and nobody knows what it is, so you can say that. Hey, that's what I am. Um, but yeah. I, was, 
I think I, I think I'm a noise designer. And what what I'm good at isn't necessarily writing music, but I might be good at removing sound until what's left sounds nice. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It's a bit like if you've got a block of marble. Yeah. You can, you know, you can remove a ton of it until you end up, hopefully, with a statue that looks nice. And that, that's really what I see my job as, as being. I think I think music is already there, and I think it's a case of filtering it out and then framing it and saying, hey, listen to this. Now, mm-hmm. I honestly think that's my, my role, I think. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's confusing. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Um, I, it made me think of, of something that I recently read in a Facebook group of, of uh, composers, um, but I think it's not exactly what you mean, of somebody um, writing that they found themselves uh, removing more and more from their pieces to make them better rather than adding stuff. Yeah. And I, I've kind of made the same journey in the beginning. I thought I had to put everything into a piece sort of to... To, because I think that's what you do when you're uh, insecure, uh, that you try to hide uh, the melody and all the, th- you know, you just throw things at, at people so they can't judge the individual elements. And, and now that I, I've done it a couple of years, I, I write, I like my, my Cubase projects are like half the tracks. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's really good. I, I, you're absolutely right. The confidence to actually write less comes over time. And it's yes. really odd because it's, it's really easy writing um, complicated melodies. It's really simple, mm-hmm. but it's really difficult writing a tune with two or three notes. You know, that restriction. And it's, yeah. you know, Art Tatum said the same thing. He sort of said the difficult thing is actually playing the rests. And actually, the rests are the rests should be the loudest element of your theme when you write a good tune. It should be the rest where the listener kind of actually feels the kind of cadence and the punch of their own bodily syncopation, if that makes sense. It doesn't matter if it's a slow piece of music. And mm-hmm. and and I, I I've come to a similar conclusion as you that actually, if I look at my, it's funny I was stemming out, you know, I was separating out an orchestral recording mm-hmm. the other day, and it was for a company where in my previous delivery to them, there'd probably been, I don't know, 16 sets of, of tracks of, of stems running on top of each other. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all those things separated out. And I was, I was, I was mapping it out yesterday and I realized there were, I couldn't make more than three parts out of it. And, and I thought, well, gosh, that's not very complicated. And actually my second thought was actually, maybe that's a good sign. Maybe. Yeah means i've edited and I, I have this theory that it's not mine i've stolen it from someone else and i can't remember who it is but you should draft you should draft things even writing or music in a really ugly way and then you should edit beautifully mm-hmm. but what you do is you edit as much as possible and and like you say you just remove 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 do you know what? it's the same with cooking because some of the finest meals i've ever heard had have had three ingredients in them it's like yeah go to, Go to America and buy a loaf of bread, and it's got 26 ingredients in it, okay? I heard it tastes like cake over there. Oh, it's like cake and plastic, no oh. offense. <laughs> unless, unless you eat sourdough from Boudin's, in which case it's about four ingredients and it's the world's best bread in the world. But, but you know, it's a bit like make, making beer in Germany. That It's against the law to use, you know, in, in, to use more than a certain number yeah. of ingredients. And there's a reason for that. And, the, the, and then what you end up doing is making sure that the ingredients themselves are better mm-hmm. 
but it's not so much about the combination of them. It's about the source material actually being beautiful. So I'm much more careful now about how I record a sound than I was previously, because actually it should be able to sound visceral and beautiful on it on its own mm -hmm. rather than hey let's have 26 instruments on us actually let's have three but let's record them really close and i don't mind if i can hear the breathing because that sounds human all that kind of stuff mm. that's 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 on the same lines as what you're talking about i think so, so what you're saying is not only um does the the composition of these three elements have to be really good but also the sound quality the, like you have to perfect those two aspects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah so, absolutely. So, so again, the parallel with with food. <laughs> it's lunchtime. Um, the, the parallel with food is that if you know if I'm using olive oil in something, I'm going to be really fussy about where it's going and how it's picked and mm -hmm. the amount of sunshine. It's the same with actually the cello that I that I play. The wood that it's made from was already 300 years old before the instrument was put together 300 years ago because and that's going to have a quality that I can never get better with a modern instrument mm -hmm. just just because there's something there's something magical about that and there's something in the long preparation of it that means when it then comes to be recorded it will then sound like it's just got another layer to it that it's really hard to define what it is but a listener will know that they, they will sense it and they don't need to know anything about music. They don't need to know no, anything about instruments, sure. but they will know, mm -hmm. you know, that's these days. What now I've grown up a bit. Now I've been doing this for a while. That's really what I look for in every project. I think. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of projects and, <laughs> and nice sounding instruments, I'll, I'll just get back to your point just for our listeners. I'll do a quick overview over your latest big project, which is Detroit Become Human. Yeah. Um, that was developed by, by Quantic Dream. Detroit Become Human came out uh, just a month ago, May 25th, 2018. And you made one soundtrack that is just for one character, which is Kara, one of the three main characters. And um, to get back to the, the aspect of recording and, and instruments, you uh, had the whole thing recorded uh, by the English Session Orchestra at Studio One in, uh, at Every Road. Yeah. But I, I listened to the soundtrack twice now. Was it... I have three questions. Essentially, uh, was it just real instruments, no VSTs? Do we hear you playing somewhere in there? Yeah. And um, what are... I, I did hear some synthesizers. I wanted, I wanted to know how, how you put those two elements together and which, uh, which synthesizers you use. Oh, good question. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, let's address all of that. So the bulk of most of the recording was done in Abbey Road Studio One. Mm -hmm. But when I was writing, I don't write at a keyboard because I can't play the piano. I've got lots of pianos, but I can't play them, okay. which is very interesting. But I, I've got lots of cellos, which I can play. Mm -hmm. So I, I, when I'm sketching, I tend to loop uh, cello just to kind of build all the parts up. Oh, yeah, I saw that uh, performance of yours on YouTube. Awesome, yeah, yeah that, that was really cool. Do you play a lot with that loop station? Yeah, I do. Most of the most of the concerts I do, I do, I do a lot of concerts in America, just live looping and improvising. It's kind of it's fun, you know. So awesome. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of stupid, but it kind of works. <laughs> no, it's great. It's awesome. I've never um, seen that. But it's a good way of composing because you end up writing a kind of linear way. You're not writing in blocks. You're not writing kind of in chords. If, if I tried to play the piano, it would be horrible. But I'd be writing in chords. Whereas when I'm writing on a, on a single line instrument, I'm actually creating weaving lines that fit together, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So it, it tends to mean that 
I write better melodies if I'm writing them for voice or, or on a string instrument. So, but to your specific point, so most of most of the recording, yeah, was done in, in Studio One at Abbey Road. Um, but all of the demos that I recorded were solo cello and were done here, mm-hmm. actually, in my in my studio outside London. It's not a big room. It's about five meters by five meters, but it's actually also a library. So it's got, <laughs> the sound is absorbed by, by the books, books yeah. Yeah, that, I, that I collect, which means you get no standing waves, to be very technical about it. Mm-hmm. And I recorded very close. So my mics are right in the bridge of the instrument and I record in the middle of the night. So it kind of, and I normally try and record, this This is going to sound crazy, I've never told him this, but I, I try and record when I'm very tired. Uh-huh. Now, the reason for that is that it means that the playing becomes a little more fragile. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not as confident on purpose. And also, I'm less likely, I think, to be thinking too much when I'm improvising, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So... You get into a kind of flow state where you can end up coming up with something that you wouldn't necessarily do in a proper recording studio, in a professional recording studio. So most of my film projects, and especially for this game, end up being a blend between this room, my instruments here, and the and the live orchestra as well. Mm-hmm. But what you're asking about as far as synths go, yeah, I've built a lot of virtual instruments that are... They sound they sound like they are synths, but they are things like um, an an electric cello that's not triggering synths. It's it's ah, oh, it's a sample. Yeah, well, no, it's actually it's actually just a it's just the strings. I've had an instrument made which is kind of beautiful, and it's it's it sounds a bit like a viol, so a bit like a Renaissance instrument. But then what I do is I put it through um, things like guitar rig. Mm-hmm. Uh, I run it through uh, at like line six foot pedals, and I also run it through kind of modular synths as well. So oh. it's doing all sorts of weird stuff. So generally, when you can hear something that sounds like it's a, a, a screwed up guitar, mm-hmm. it's probably a cello. Oh, um, yeah. And when you can hear something that sounds like it's an analog synth, it, it's it's a cello as well. Cool. <laughs> but, but the actual software I'm using, I use um, Iris, which I love, by Isotope. I think that's a, one of the most incredible sampling programs. And the great thing about that is you can get into it and you can change the harmonics, the overtones above the instrument. So I've built lots of patches in that. And I, I, one other secret, which is that I, I've got a Steinway um, grand piano here in the other studio. And I recorded a long time ago, I recorded just a sequence of notes in there that when you drop them down in pitch and i put them in ableton actually which i use a lot i use ableton push controllers a huge amount i love them as, as instruments but any bass line i've ever written in the last five years in an orchestra the double bass two octaves underneath it that um, so it's inaudible is a grand piano oh. track, tracking the same line so that's and and what it does is it means you get a deep deep sub that you can't really hear but you can feel it mm-hmm. And it's really strange. It gives a super, super root. Oh, and yeah. it's a good, for any composer, I always try and track two octaves below your your bass note. And it, it honestly works because it, mm-hmm. it opens up the dimensionality of any track without increasing the volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it does seem to work. I kind of stumbled on it by accident because, you know, I remember the first time I ever went to see an IMAX film and you're punched in the in the chest with this bass sound and it's but it's not loud it's just it's a feeling i thought i need 
I need to work out how to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, the next time, the next time I see one of my movies in a big screen, I, I want it to feel like that. And and having that piano to Oxus Blow did it every time. Oh, cool! I <laughs> I didn't ever think of using a piano. I I have uh, thickened tracks before with uh, just a simple sine uh, yeah. wave, which is it's very like that. Okay. It, it actually, yeah, it has because there's no attack on the notes. Yeah. I mean, but by the time it's got two octaves down, it just sounds like a kind of warm hum. So it's, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's essentially a sine wave, but it's a dirty sine wave. Yeah. It's not. You know, it's not quite pure, you know, so therefore it sounds better. Yeah, absolutely. It has more and more character. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, apart from uh, that, are there just just strings and distorted strings in the whole soundtrack? Yeah, uh, that's it. I th- I'm, trying to th- I'm trying to think now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because, uh, I mean, there, as I say, I've built a lot of instruments sort of from scratch, and they do they do appear to be synths, but... They're nearly always based on originally on an analog waveform, mm-hmm. and generally they're either from a piano or from a from a cello at some point. You know? Cool. Um, yeah, it's weird. And and whenever a track sounds too clean, I tend to throw I tend to throw th- strange things in it. So I've got these harmonics that I tend to overlay inside a track. I even recorded at one point an hour of silence in Abbey Road Studio Two, which I occasionally put under everything which is kind of just which is weird Mm -hmm. you know i call it an hour without the beatles it's kind of awesome yeah right (laughs) i just actually i actually did it by taking all the silence from an orchestral session so there's people sitting there and you you can sense there are people breathing but they're not playing anything so there's this kind of tension to it and it's uh ah okay i was wondering uh if they just left you alone for an hour in the studio uh but okay yeah they do that as well but it doesn't sound as good as a lot of people sounding slightly nervous you know (laughs) and breathing awesome could release that by itself one day I, I think so very minimalist I feel like giving you lots of secrets <laughs> yeah. yeah they're all out there now Damn. <laughs> um, so um, onto the aspect that it's a game and it's it's actually a, a you know a soundtrack for a character in a game I think those are two very uh, defining features as well of the soundtrack um, first well Actually, to my later point first, you said that you write music about people when you write music in general. That's something you do uh, like naturally. So um, was it the same with this fictitious Kara that you wrote music for? Yeah, I had to make her real in my head. And it's funny because most of my movies have been about real people because they've been documentaries. And... It's it's quite easy writing about real people because you don't have to create an, a sense of artifice. It, it's you know you can read everything about them, often meet them, yeah, take their voice and make that a thing. Obviously, this is entire, literally an entirely synthetic character in every single way. Yeah. So I weird enough, I didn't work um, very much from the computer generated images. Mm-hmm. I worked a lot on, I had all of them, nearly all of the motion capture film of Valerie Curry, the actress ah. was amazing. So I actually wrote it really about her. I've not told her that. <laughs> uh, she probably feel quite uncomfortable about it, but I, 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 cause I, you know, until, until the thing was kind of rendered fully, it was impossible to, to, 
get that level of expression that you see in the final game. And you're looking, it's a bit like being a poker player, you're looking for those little signs and tells that you get mm-hmm. uh, from from a tr- totally human interaction. Now, having, having said that, I, I had to find a way whereby I thought I was going to write mechanical music. I thought I was going to write something that was going to be based around clockwork and mm-hmm. toys. And, you know, I did that when I started. I was using kind of a broken speak and spell machine from, you know, that kind of stuff and, and weird circuitry, bits of aeroplanes, things that had a mechanical kind of um, life to them. But then without being a spoiler at all, because it happens at the beginning of the game, Kara is suddenly put in the position where she suddenly has to be more like a mother yeah. than a robot. Yeah. So, um, and I've got, you know, I've got, I've got kids and I've got three daughters and Actually, I found myself pretty quickly thinking about what's it feel like to protect somebody? What does it feel like to actually have that fear that any fa- any parent does? And and a, and a, a you know, and a kind of father's fear is quite strange. It's sort of I want to protect and I want to make you free at the same time. And I really just tapped into that. Mm-hmm. And then I found that was a really good place to write from. And then with any project, I wrote about five pieces to start with, just for people to kind of react to and say yes or no. And then once we found the thing that sounded like or felt like her, I wrote tons and tons and tons of music. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much. And I had a year to write this, mm-hmm. which a really in my world, that's a really long time. The most amount of time I ever have on a movie is normally two to three months mm-hmm. from having the first idea to delivering everything fully recorded and mixed. Sometimes it's as little as 12 days from commission to delivery. That's going into a studio with an orchestra in the middle, <laughs> having, you know, and you, you have to cover it with 18 minutes of music. So it was very strange having that much time. And, yeah. um, and what it meant was that I ended up writing, coming up with whole ideas and then throwing the whole thing away. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's terrible. Let's try this. Let's do this, this, and this. And, and you kind of go in circles until... You edit away all of the noise and you just come up with something that feels like it purely the soul of that of that character. So that sounds yeah. like having that extra time was really beneficial to the to the end product, right? Yeah, it's the first time in, in 11 years of being a, you know, a full on composer that I've ever had that much time. <laughs> and, and it was quite it was, it's quite scary having that much freedom actually it's it's easy when someone says i need it tomorrow where if, if they say oh, i need it in three weeks time four weeks time well, that's really hard okay you know, it, it is you know deadlines are, i i live in the world of deadlines deadlines are very relaxing for me it, it's you know i've never missed one they it gives you the adrenaline to come up with a good idea quickly yeah absolutely it's, It's very easy to have a bad idea when you're given a lot of time. And so I had loads of bad ideas. <laughs> That, that's why I asked if you felt like it made your, the end product better or worse, because I, I've talked to more people about this kind of thing. I know a lot of people who freelance, work from home, uh, composers, but also academics mm. uh, who write their thesis for like three years. And uh, sometimes I wonder if having like that time cut by 80% would have yielded a better result. <laughs> I think that's often true because it's either one or the other. So for me, quick ideas are really good. Middle ideas are terrible. And then long form ideas tend to be quick ideas that have actually been 
we call it flamethrower. And they've, they've had everything kind of carved off them and they become solid. Mm-hmm. They become you're so sure about them that actually they've been they've been through every form of weather, you know, uh-huh. and that they will still survive. When when you're in the middle of that, it, it's you know the, the the kind of interim amount of time is actually the worst because mm-hmm. then everyone has an opinion, everyone changes their mind, and actually part of it isn't so much the composer; it's more the people listening the other end will listen a different way if they know that it has to be finished by tomorrow. Yeah, that's true. Right? They will make a binary decision. And it's better for me if a director says, that sucks, rather than, yeah, that's 60% there. Mm. 60% there means start again. Yeah. It, that, you, you can't recover it. That's like someone saying 50% alive. No, they're <laughs> They're half dead. <laughs> yeah. But that's <laughs> also something people have to learn. At the beginning, when you start out as a composer, um, <laughs> oftentimes uh, fe- feedback is sometimes like, maybe people are too polite, or uh, yeah. and, and then you, you get back to the track and you change some things. And at the very beginning, when I started out, it was like, um, did you change anything about the track? And I was like, yeah, I changed loads of things, because to your ears, you heard it tons of times. It sounds exactly. different, but what they actually want is, uh, or what would actually have been best would, would have been starting from scratch immediately because they want yeah. a different track. So the solution to that, which I, again I learned over time, is don't spend too long writing initial ideas. Actually, just write hundreds of ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, dra- dra- draft many, many ideas and then throw a lot of them away mm-hmm. very happily. And that's why if you play an instrument, it's actually if you and, and I don't think of it as improvisation, because that's kind of a word which has too many meanings. But if you think of it as being like spontaneous composition, now, everything that you make up isn't going to be great. Mm-hmm. Maybe one thing, two things out of 100. Yeah, one thing in 50 might might have legs. It might be, you know, it might have potential. So the trick is to maybe sit and play for an hour, mm-hmm. you know. And record it all. And you know what? One minute of it might be really good. That's that's plenty. That's great. That's a great, great method. But it works. It honestly okay. works. It's a bit like Ernest Hemingway didn't worry about having an idea. He would just write, you know, 5,000 words before his first whiskey in the morning. He would just... <laughs> I don't do that. Um, but he would do that. It's just just sit and write. And, 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 and that honestly works. And I, I see too many composers, particularly young composers... Sitting there, you know, with a pencil or other computer thinking, uh, I don't know, I don't know what to write. It doesn't work. Actually doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's much better. Go for a walk, take an instrument with you, whatever, and just write, 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 write. Mm-hmm. And then throw away. Mm-hmm. And you'll end up with something beautiful. If you do that, if you do that every day for a month, you'll have a symphony. Yeah. That's... It's enough material. Mm-hmm. And then but, but so the skill, if there is one. Is, in a, is being able to spot what's good and what sucks. Yeah. And you have to trust your sense of goosebumps. Like, And it might simply be that that melody stretching up a seventh or dropping down a ninth makes me feel good. I don't know why. I kind of like that. It might be, oh, I've heard something that sounds like a hook. You know, oh, actually, the, the sound of that, that bowl dropping in the sink sounds really cool. That's compositional. That's fine. Or it might be that going from that chord 
you know, I often drop chords by a third. It's a terrible habit. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that in doing that, there's one particular one that feels like, ah, oh, that I know that's going to come up somewhere. It's going to be the center of a piece. I'll then reverse engineer other chords to fit around it. And, that, and that's not, I try, you know, one or two of those a day, you've got a career. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So you would say that one of the most important skills to develop as a composer is actually taste, right? Actually uh, hearing what's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the other thing that's really important, and it comes off something you said, the other thing to develop is a sense of separation from your work and yourself, by which I mean, when you're writing, you have to pour your soul, brain and heart into it. But when you've finished your piece of music, that piece of music exists without you. It's not about you. It's not for you. It's for someone else. And it's about something else, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Which means, if someone says, I think that music sucks, and they will, and they might be a director or they might be a listener, you can turn around to that person and say, yeah, I can hear why you'd think that. And you don't feel bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Similarly, similarly, when someone says, do you know that piece of music changed my life? You can say, thank you. It doesn't make me a better person. That piece of music isn't me, and it's not about me. So you have to be a bit zen about it and actually mm-hmm. kind of think, well, once the music's out there, it's it's not virtuous and it's not bad. It's neither one thing nor the other. It's but when you were writing it, you were you were pouring yourself into it. But once it's once it's left your desk and it's gone into the studio, you do not own it. And you also, in a way, don't own its baggage. Now, that sounds like a deep psychology. It is a way of coping with criticism. Sure. But it's also true. It's not like you're lying to yourself. It's just true what no. you said because you're writing it for a particular project, for a particular character, none of which you came up with. And ultimately, it's the other people that have to that have to like it. Yes, and and also people get people get very upset. Well, they get very excited and very upset about music, particularly in games, um, which I understand. I mean, it's, I'm not a gamer, so it's not really my. It's not my world, but it's very it's a very passionate world. Yeah. <laughs> weirdly enough, I mean I won't go into it too much, but I'm I'm a I'm a composer who's probably received more death threats than any other composer. How's that? Um because I I had to rearrange all of the anthems for the Olympic Games um in twenty twelve, which then become the anthems for the next twenty five years that are used for all the Olympic events. Mm-hmm. Now people feel very, very strongly about anthems. And oh I yeah, understand- right. I understand that, and that's and that's fine. So someone can write to me and say, "I hate what you did with the American national anthem. It sucks, and you're a horrible person, and I'm going to kill your family." That kind of thing. I mean, dramatic, but there are people out there who'll do that. Oh so yeah. It's, it's quite funny when you say, "Well, I'm enough of a geek to be able to work out what your IP address is and where you live." Um, so I'll write to them and say, "Well, thank you for your criticism. Um, you have to understand that was a commission, and." I agree with the points you're making about the harmony. You, you totally, you might be right, but this is a commission and your head of state approved it, by the way. And would you possibly like to retract the death threat? Because I'm not sure that's connected to our, our exciting discussion about my work. I don't see the connection. And it's, quite, it's hilarious, actually, when you say, well, thank you. Thank you for your comments. And I normally, I normally retweet them. I normally kind of you know, put them out and say, here's, here's, an, here's an interesting comment. <laughs> it's just, oh, and I, 
you, you have to learn a sense of scope and sanity. And in a way, it comes from that. And it's been great because once you bring it into a movie, and I really care very much about movies and games and things like that. I really do care about the music. But it's not about me. Mm-hmm. It's I, I'm writing about the character and I'm definitely writing for the player or the viewer. That's really where my where my responsibility is. And, you know, it's kind of goes with this thing. I've worked with lots of rock musicians and I think the idea of being famous because of your music is kind of terrifying mm-hmm. and, a bit, and a bit unhealthy. I, I'd be quite happy if nobody ever knew what I looked like. That's totally fine because it means nothing. My music has no connection to it at all. Mm-hmm. And it's, that, it's a good thing about being a composer is you can be really anonymous. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's uh, actually something that appeals to me as well because you can work on, on really cool stuff and you can really make it without people annoying you when you leave your house. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I was, in a, I was in a band for a while that did quite, you know, I've been in professional string quartets and I've been in rock bands that have done quite well. And they sort of said, yeah, we need to talk about your haircut. And you think, no, not really, because I've got to pick my children up from kindergarten. So I'm not going to have, I'm not, I'm honestly not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to dress me. I, no, this is not happening. <laughs> That's very cool. But you made me really curious. Uh, did people ever respond to your response letters? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. They got very worried because they knew they could obviously see that I was I was dealing with it, and I had an apology. Every single one of them, I've had a personal apology from them. Oh, really? Awesome. Which I haven't been looking for. I've kind of thought sometimes the best thing to do is to engage with people and either be humorous or confuse them by saying, oh, "Yeah, I think you're right." You know, <laughs> it's it's like how to descale a fight. You know, That's if you're, super if someone, disarming. If, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, if, yeah, if someone ever tries to fight you, what you do is, or they're trying to offend you to build up to fight, you just, if you constantly agree with them, they can't do anything. There's nowhere <laughs> to go. And it, that's kind of fun, you know? So that's, that's the, that's the yeah. way I deal with it. Yeah, you know, I was expecting plenty of hate for doing a, a game. I don't know why it hasn't uh, been fun. You can't expect that. It, no, but I, it's you unfortunately know. kind of in the, in the culture uh, of video games. It can be, and I was, I was sort of ready for it, but actually it's been very gracious so far. But you you have to just be sort of, approach it without, hopefully without taking it to, to, to heart, I suppose, you know. But I felt like, at least from reading the comments uh, under the uh, the videos on YouTube and all, that people really love your soundtrack. Did, did you get negative feedback from the gaming community? No. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of like, why not? I must have done something wrong. <laughs> I don't know. No, they've been really nice, and and it's it's opened up a whole layer of of people I would never normally be playing to, you know. Yeah. And, and 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 actually, I've learned a lot from one of the actors in the game, uh, Brown Deschard. He he, uh, he does this great thing where if anybody messages him on Twitter, and he's got thousands and thousands of followers, he'll engage with as many of them as possible, and it's really gracious. And actually. If someone writes and says, I like what you do, um, I, I, I always write back to them because I, someone's taking the trouble to kind of sit and write that. These days, you can respond to people. And I think you yeah, should. Yeah, it's awesome. I think that's, I think that's only, well, I think that's only, only right, you know. And also, if there have been a couple where someone's been trying to be dramatic and saying, I, I, you know, someone said, I want to fight Philip Shepard the other day. And I... I They were actually making the point that because it was making them feel too much because I thought it looked really good. I was like, yeah, then bring it on. Let's do this. But, and, and I think I wrote, can't we have a cup of tea first? <laughs> yeah. 
he went along with it. So it was kind of, yeah, you have to be playful in this stuff. It's life, life's too short to be too serious about it, you know? Absolutely, really. yeah, absolutely. Let, let's get to, back to the music. Um, I was really, you said you're not a gamer. Um, and uh, usually, uh, I mean, Quantic Dream games are notoriously film-like. Um, yeah. So, um, but you said you work with uh, off, off off all of this mocap footage. So yeah. you didn't actually make much. Uh, this is also something I noticed when I, I watched the two and a half hour playthrough of of, of uh, Kara's storyline. Um, yeah. And I noticed that the music isn't that interactive. It it tends to just play uh, sort of in the background and more support the mood than the action. Right. Yes, it's not. It's so. So the way that the mechanics of the game work, certainly for Kara's character, I can't talk to the others necessarily as much, is that there are very few moments where the music is overly, uh, I suppose, dynamic in a technical sense. In as much as it's not necessarily okay, you 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 hit that and this and this is triggered. Yeah. There were some moments where we knew we could do that, particularly in, for instance, the the fight scene with Todd. That's very. That's kind of because it's a funny mixture of cutscene and these kind of interactive controls. Mm -hmm. So some of it's hidden, the mechanics of how the game is triggering the music. Mm -hmm. And there's things like when there's a music box that's opened, there's all sorts of clever stuff there whereby some of the music is coming from one place. Some of it's in your head. Some of it's actually in location as you're moving around, but uh -huh. it does fit, fit together. So it, it was it was locked in, but it was probably in a much more... Um, ambient and technically diegetic way so that things tended to appear to come from specific specific objects or places but it wasn't so much that okay if I hit this person and then that cue is gonna start mm -hmm. okay um, having said that we built an enormous toolkit of parts so that when the characters start knitting their narratives together the the separate themes overlay between myself and the other composers. Mm -hmm. That's not down to any brains on my part. That's entirely down to the music editors at Quantic Dream, who are just incredible. I mean, really brilliant. But you did have to uh, coordinate with, uh, like, on a musical level, with the other two composers. If you're gonna overlay your music, no, no. no. Here's the crazy thing. We thought all three of us, so it's um, Nim Fakarian and John Pozano and myself, we had every intention of sitting in a studio and jamming together and writing. And once we started writing our individual sketches for our, our own characters, um, Quantic Dream realized pretty quickly that there was more strength in us developing a very particular sound and a kind of palette, a sound world for each character separately, mm -hmm. kind of keeping them in their own silo. Mm -hmm. um, mine, mine was sort of soulful and string-based. Um, Neymar's was kind of found sounds and beautiful analog synths, still with, with raw, close recorded sound. And then John's was much more sort of epic, full orchestra kind of hybrid score. Mm -hmm. And because we, which matched our characters' kind of motivations, and because our characters are in their own story, really, especially at the beginning, it made sense for us not to actually be influenced by one another at all. And then the crazy thing is that, for instance, when Kara's crossing the, the, the freeway, we just tried overlaying, I think, one of my bits of music with some of Neymar's, and they just fitted together. And it was... <laughs> what? Okay. It's completely accidental and like serendipity. And it, it's weird, sometimes when you actually fully isolate things, your ear will make them fit together, even though they've not been written towards one another 
at all. It, it was really quite strange. And I'm, I'm so happy with how it came out in that way, because I love the other composer's music. I think it's, it's great. And I'm, I'm actually glad that I didn't hear it, because I think it would have affected the colour of what I was writing. Mm-hmm. I absolutely understand keeping it separate to, to like preserve the identities of the music and the characters uh, as best as possible, but I did think that, it's, for instance, for scenes uh, like the one on the, on the freeway where Kara is chased by Connor, you would have like collaborated to, to make a scene um, yeah. where two main characters occur, but you didn't. <laughs> thought so. <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't. The, mu- the music seemed set to have its own its own life where it naturally locked locked in together it was which is great i mean i i love that i think also if you're writing aware of another composer's stuff you start to write more for the other composer than you do necessarily for the project which is a weird thing to say but you're you're trying to impress each other does that make sense you're, you're trying to write yeah. well, i'm gonna i'm gonna write for him rather than actually for the, for the player yeah so i think all of us, we probably ended up sounding more like ourselves than we have done before. Mm-hmm. Bear in mind, this is the first project I've done where I could purely concentrate on one character, not different characters and and a setting and a landscape and, 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 and all that. I literally just have to write the inside of her head. That was my job. Mm-hmm. And that never, it's almost more operatic. It's more like, more, more like kind of, okay, I'm going to track this one character the entire way through a story arc. That never happens in a movie. Not that I can think of, you know. No. Because you're always having to write for the scenery as well or an interaction with another character. I I was almost encouraged to not do that. So I I didn't, I wasn't really writing music for Todd, for instance. I was writing music. It was all still in her head, whatever. Yeah. That that makes sense, you know. Absolutely. And so you, there was no additional music for any, uh, there was just your three character scores. That's it. That is it. That's that. That's all. Yeah. I mean, it ended up being about 55 separate pieces of music that then got split out into big toolkits and stuff. So it was a lot. It was a lot, a lot of recording. But I, I probably wrote. 10 times as much of that in the actual process. <laughs> sure, I mean, yeah. But uh, that's really, I, uh, the one playthrough I saw was two and a half hours long, and that's just one of many, many variations, possible variations of Carol's story alone. Yes. So um, you have to like write loads of music for such an enormous story. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I haven't, uh, I haven't played it since it came out, actually. I, I... <laughs> Um, I'm going to, but I want to have some separation from it so I don't sit there thinking, oh, I wish I'd written that instead. You know what I mean? I want to actually play mm-hmm. it unconsciously. And I'm, my, my 10-year-old has played it, which is hilarious because it's an R-rated game. Uh, but he was playing it with me when I was writing it so that we could test scenes. Because my hands naturally go to the PS1 setting. And the last time I played computer games was Wipeout on the PS1. And I was really good. Okay. But it, you know, it didn't have paddles. It was, you know, it was just buttons. So my, yeah. my, my default setting is wrong. So he, my 10 year old was like, dad, let me help you with work. <laughs> That's really cool. It, it was cool. I took him, I took him to Quantic Dream Studios to the mocap studio and they made him a game tester for the day. And he's decided that's He's decided that's going to be his job. <laughs> okay, let's see. I can I can recommend game developer. Uh, game tester tends to be really repetitive, I, and you have I'm to try do. and explain that to him. But but David Cage, who runs Quantic, said that the last time a musician brought their son to the studio, it was David Bowie bringing Duncan Jones. I'm like, what? 
And he said that Duncan had turned around to his dad and said, Dad, I think I want to be a director. <laughs> Which is what my son had said as well. So he said, watch out, it might happen. I went, yeah, it's fine. I'm not David Bowie, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the legacy here. Oh man, that's cool. Yeah, I, I don't really, I don't really care if I don't know. I played R-rated games when I was ten, and I'm not really scarred, so I no, think that's fine. all right. <laughs> fine, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but there are um, there is some some heavy uh, subject matter there um, in the game. So I f I felt like the first half was about slavery, and the second half had like Holocaust uh, themes. Yeah. So that was really. Wow, that was really tough, the, the, the whole story. And I was wondering, like, did you draw inspiration from... Because you said you really wrote for the character. But did yeah. you draw inspiration from any other, like, musical works as, that dealt with similar subject matter? Honestly, no, but I drew a lot on the subjects that were referred to, if that makes sense. I'm really... This is going to sound crazy. I'm really careful not to listen to a lot of music. Mm -hmm. because I'm always terrified that I'm going to copy it in some way. Oh, yeah. And, and so I tend to read a lot for inspiration rather than listen to a lot. So, yeah, I mean, obviously there were implied themes to do with, um, you know, uh, racial prejudice, certainly to do with, the, you know, yeah, the Holocaust was definitely a touch point. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've been to... Auschwitz and you know I've been to those places I didn't want to lean on that too hard but certainly reading things like Primo Levi um if this mm. and that was very important and I'd read a lot of Solzhenitsyn when I was younger as well um to, more more to do with the science of um sentience in 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 machines okay I, I was weirdly enough I was very good friends with Marvin Minsky who was the guy who invented the concept of artificial intelligence in the first place he he died oh. about a year and a half ago uh it was about 88 89 and he was he was a good friend of mine weirdly enough um and uh, he, he he in fact invented the computer HAL in 2001 space odyssey oh but he also taught Arthur C Clarke and Richard Feynman and people like that and I Yeah, it was weird because I knew him as well. Wow. So we, we did have a lot of conversations about this. And, and his widow, Gloria, who's just hilarious, is uh, is really wanting to play the game. Um, but we actually snuck Marvin Minsky in as an Easter egg. So, oh, oh. yeah. Where? I, well, I, I had found, I had been given a piece of piano music by him, by his daughter. She had given me his, because his, he was a great pianist and composer. Mm -hmm. And no one's really ever heard this stuff. So I, I took the tape into Abbey Road, cleaned it up, and we recorded. I recorded a kind of concerto accompaniment around him playing the piano. And then I showed it to David Cage. He said, wait a minute, I've actually named a character after Marvin Minsky. Did you, you, you knew him? I'm like, well, yeah, here's a piece of music that I <coughs> recorded. I, it was all planned. As in, <laughs> hey, how cool would it be? If this appeared in the game somewhere, I'm not going to tell you where it appears, but... Oh, what's this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you get, to, you get to about 2,000 points and you can actually, you can unlock Marvin Minsky rather than the gun, which I kind of quite like, because then it might mean some 14 or 15 year old is sitting there thinking, wait, who's Marvin Minsky? And then mm -hmm. they might go and read about him. And for me, that encapsulates what my job is as a musician, is to kind of say, hey, this person's really cool. This is lovely. Let me bury this in something that's kind of a commercial project. And that might live on a little bit longer. That idea might live on a little bit longer. So it was. It also showed, I think, that 
the the company, the Quantic and and David are quite romantic and also they're quite artistic as well. It yeah. wasn't just about dime on the dollar. It was very much about hey, we can we can do make some really nice gestures here, you know. So that was that was a kind of fun one. I'm really of all the things about this game, that's the thing I'm proudest of actually is being able to sneak my friend in there. <laughs> <laughs> Really cool. No, but you can tell from the end product that it was really about something. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've noticed in the background, but I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of Ghost in the Shell. Oh wow! Great. <laughs> and I have the I have the poster here. It's the only poster I have, really. That's excellent. Yeah, it's not 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 a dissimilar kind of look and feel to that, is it? You know. Yeah, it's great. all the subject matter. I mean, it's essentially it's essentially the whole Pinocchio story all over again, right? Being a real boy uh, uh, without um, being actually alive. Well, and you can track you can track it all the way back to Greek mythology as well, because there's the story of, of Olympia. And you know we've got Prometheus stealing fire, and it, yeah, it's it's a very old even the golem, if you think about yeah. it, in kind of Jewish cultures. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very old European idea. This and there is all of that to tap into as well. I mean, I did. It's funny. I did listen to things like Richard Strauss, Olympia, uh, or, or Olympia's Aria, things like that. When I was because he's got this great way of writing music that feels like clockwork. That's actually still very soulful. It's really beautiful, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, that's definitely a trope, and it's definitely an idea that's lasted a long time. Yeah. In Western culture, so uh, you know. If if part of it taps into that, then that that would be cool, you know. <laughs> yes, yeah, and it's it's becoming ever more relevant um, yeah. now with technological advances and all. Totally. Yeah, I think I've, I've already talked for an hour. So, is there anything else uh, you'd like to to add uh, that we didn't touch on before? Um, no, I don't think so. What I would say is, if any of your listeners would like to hear other types of music, then they can message me on Twitter, and I'll send them for a free album. How about that? Oh wow, that's really nice of you. No, well, why not? I want people to hear the music. I don't want to sell music. I want people to hear music. So, you know, if uh, if they're interested in hearing more, just get in touch. And I, I always send people download codes. So um, that's a genuine offer. So if awesome. anyone's interested in that, then that's the least I can do for taking <laughs> up an hour of their time, I think. <laughs> Come on. Oh, no, it's really nice of you. Thank you very much. I'll, uh, I'll pass it along then. No problem. Great. Well. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, then thanks, thanks a lot for your time and uh, for the insights, all the secrets you just gave away forever. Well, <laughs> well I, Julian, thank you so much. Great interview, and I, I really love the show. So it's a real honor for me to be to be on it, and I'm I'm excited to see what people think of the game and and the music. And yeah, thank you. Wow, what a guy! He not only did some interesting projects, but also. Uh, knew some fascinating people um, like Marvin Minsky, so uh, I hope we didn't drift off too far from our usual topics like uh, musical composition. Anyway, you heard the man, he's giving away codes for free for his music, so just hit him up on Twitter. His handle is at Philip Shepard, Philip with one P in the end and Shepard with um, P-P-A-R-D. And he will get back to you, even if you threaten physical harm, apparently. <laughs> so, um, do go and use this exclusive offer he made us to enjoy more of his music. And of course, subscribe to us for more interviews like this one, where we really go behind the audio. So if you enjoyed it, follow us, so check out our website and our social pages. And I hope to see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>